0: Section Twenty Eight of a History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume Three, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Sixty One, Ninety Eight, Part One. England was not concerned merely with the successes of France upon the continent with the French power of resisting invasion and preserving its capital and its constitution, the time was at hand when England was to take the French Republic into consideration as a more active enemy whose enmity might take effect and be a very serious menace at her own doors. The breath of the French Revolution was to Great Britain, like that of a sudden storm which sweeps round some stately mansion and finds out all its weak places and shatters some of its outlying buildings although it cannot unroof its firmest towers or disturb its foundations the weakest spot in great britain and indeed we might almost say in the whole british empire was the kingdom of ireland ireland had for long been in a state of what might almost be called chronic rebellion against the rule of england england's enemies had always been regarded as ireland's friends by the irishmen who claimed especially to represent the national aspirations of their country this is a fact which cannot be made too clear to the minds of englishmen even at the present day for the simple reason that no one who is capable of forming a rational idea on the subject can doubt that where a government is persistently hated that government must have done much to deserve the hate. It is not necessary here to undertake a survey of the many grievances of which Ireland complained under the rule of Great Britain. One grievance which was especially felt during the reign of George the came from the persistent refusal of the Hanoverian sovereign to listen to any proposals for the relief of the Roman Catholics from the civil and religious disabilities under which they suffered. The Catholics constituted five-sixths of the whole population of Ireland, and up to the time of the War of Independence in America, no Catholic in Great Britain or Ireland could sit in Parliament or vote for the election of a member of Parliament, or act as a barrister or solicitor, or sit on a bench of magistrates, or on a grand jury, or hold land, or obtain legal security for a loan. No doubt the state of the penal laws as they then existed was mitigated when compared with that which had prevailed but a short time before, when an ordinary Catholic had any right to do more than live in Ireland, and a Catholic priest had not even a legal right to live there but up to the time when the growing principles of liberty manifested themselves in the overthrow of the feudal system in france the catholics in great britain and ireland were practically excluded from any approach to civil or religious liberty ireland had a parliament but it was a parliament of protestants elected by protestants and it was in fact a mere department of the king's administration the american war of independence suddenly awakened wild hopes in the breasts of all oppressed nationalities and the irish catholic population was among the first to be quickened by the new life and the new hope the national idea was not however at first for a separation from england ireland was then for the most part under the leadership of henry grattan a patriot statesman and orator an orator whom charles james fox described as the irish demosthenes and whom byron glorified as with all that demosthenes wanted endued and his rival and victor in all he possessed grattan's purpose was not separation from england or the setting up of an independent republic in ireland enjoying religious equality for all denominations and possessing a parliament thoroughly independent of that sitting at westminster would have satisfied all his patriotic ambition in fact what grattan would have desired for ireland is exactly such a system as is now possessed by one of the provinces of canada or australia when the alliance between france and independent america began to threaten great britain and the english government practically acknowledged its inability to provide for the defence of ireland henry grattan with other irish patriots of equal sincerity and some of them of even higher social rank started the irish volunteer movement to be a bulwark of the country in case of foreign invasion when the irish patriots found themselves at the head of an army of disciplined volunteers they naturally claimed that the country which was able to defend herself should be allowed also an independent parliament with which to make her domestic laws they obtained their end at least for the moment and at least to all outward appearance and grattan was enabled to declare that for the first time he addressed a free parliament in ireland and to invoke the spirit of swift to rejoice over the event catholic emancipation however had not yet been secured, although Grattan and those who worked with him did their best to carry it through the Parliament in Dublin. The obstinacy of King George still prevailed against every effort made by the more enlightened of his ministers. Pitt was, in his brain and heart, a friend of Catholic emancipation, but he had at last given way to the King's angry and bitter protests and complaints, and had made up his mind never again to trouble his sovereign with futile recommendations it so happened that a new viceroy sent over to ireland in seventeen ninety four earl fitzwilliam became impressed with a sense of the justice of the claims of catholic emancipation and therefore gave spontaneous and honorable encouragement to the hopes of the irish leaders the result was that after three months tenure of office he was suddenly recalled and the expectations of the Irish leaders and the Irish people were cruelly disappointed. From that moment it must have been clear to any keen observer in Ireland that the influence of Grattan and his friends could no longer control the action of the Irish nationalists in general, and that the policy of Grattan would no longer satisfy the popular demands of Ireland. Short as had been the Irish independent parliament's term of existence, it had been long enough to satisfy most Irishmen that the control of the king's accepted advisers was almost as absolute in Dublin as in Westminster. To the younger and more ardent spirits among the Irish nationalists, the setting up of a nominally independent Irish parliament had always seemed but a poor achievement when compared with the change which their national ambition longed for. And which the conditions of the hour, to all appearance, conspired to render attainable. These young men were now filled with all the passion of the French Revolution. They had always longed for the creation of an independent Ireland. They insisted that Grattan's promise had already proved a failure, and in France, the enemy of England, they found their new hopes for the emancipation of Ireland. There were among the Irish rebels, as they were soon to declare themselves, Many men of great abilities and of the purest patriotic purpose. Among the very foremost of these were Theobald Wolfe Tone and Lord Edward Fitzgerald. Both these men, like all the other leaders of the movement that followed, were Protestants, as Grattan was. Wolfe Tone was a young man of great capacity and promise who began his public career as secretary to an association formed for the purpose of effecting the relief of the roman catholics from the civil and religious disabilities which oppressed them this society after a while was named the association of united irishmen the united irishmen were at that time only united for the purpose of obtaining catholic emancipation the association as we shall soon see when it failed of its first object, became united for other and sterner purposes. Wolfe Tone was a young man of a brilliant, Byronic sort of nature. There was much in his character and temperament, which often recalls to the mind of the reader the generous impulse, the chivalric ardor, and the impetuous eccentricity of Byron. Tone, as a youth, was a careless student, or indeed, to put it more distinctly, he only studied the subjects he cared about, and was in the habit of neglecting his collegiate tasks until the hour arrived when it became absolutely necessary that he should master them enough at least to pass muster for each emergency he was a keen and close student of any subject which had genuine interest for him but such subjects were seldom those which had anything to do with his academical career he studied law after a fashion in one of the london inns of court and he was called to the bar in due course. But he had no inclination whatever for the business of an advocate, and his mind was soon driven away from the pursuit of a legal career. He had a taste for literature and a longing for travel and military adventure in especial, and for a time he lived a pleasant, free and easy Bohemian sort of life, if we may use the term Bohemian, in describing days that existed long before Henri Mourget had given the word its modern application one of the many odd original ideas which floated like bubbles across wolf tone's fancy was a scheme for founding a sort of military colony in some island in the south seas to act as a check upon the designs and enterprises of spain against the british empire tone took his idea so seriously that he wrote to william pitt the prime minister describing and explaining his project, and asking for government help in order to make it a reality. As will be easily understood, Pitt took no notice of the proposal, having probably a good many more suggestions made to him every day as to the best defences of England than he could possibly consider in a week. It is somewhat curious, however, to find that Wolfe Tone should at one period of his life have formed the idea of helping England, to defend herself against her enemies. Some historians have gone so far as to opine that if Pitt could have seen his way to take Tone's proposition seriously and to patronize the young man, the world might never have heard of the insurrection of Ninety-Eight. But no one who gives any fair consideration to the whole career and character of Tone can have any doubt that Tone's passionate patriotism would have made him the champion of his own country, no matter what prospects the patronage of an English minister might have offered to his ambition. At the time when Tone was scheming out his project for the island in the South Seas, the leaders in the national movement in Ireland still believed that the just claims of their people were destined to receive satisfaction from the wisdom and justice of the English sovereign. When it became apparent that catholic emancipation was not to be obtained through george the third and through pitt then wolfe tone made up his mind that there was no hope for ireland but an absolute independence and that that independence was only to be won by the help of napoleon bonaparte and of france in the meantime tone had taken a step which brilliant gifted generous and impecunious young men usually take at the opening of their career he had made a sudden marriage matilda witherington was only sixteen when tone persuaded her to accept him as her husband and to share his perilous career romance itself hardly contains any story of a marriage more imprudent and yet more richly rewarded by love tone adored his young wife and she adored him love came in at their door and though poverty entered there too, love never flew out at the window the whole story of Wolf Tone's public career may be read in the letters which, during their various periods of long separation, no difficulties and no dangers ever prevented him from writing to his wife, when he made up his mind to consecrate himself to the national cause of Ireland, and if necessary to die for it. He set forth his purpose to his wife, and she never tried to dissuade him from it. It is told of her that at one critical period of his fortunes, she concealed from him the fact that she expected to become a mother lest the knowledge might chill his patriotic enthusiasm or make him unhappy in his enterprise tone went out to america and got into council with the representative of the french republic there then he returned to europe and he entered into communication with carnot and with napoleon bonaparte to these and to others he imparted his plans for a naval and military expedition from france to approach the coast of ireland to land troops there and to make the beginning of a great irish rebellion which must distract the attention and exhaust the resources of england and place her at the feet of all conquering france tone felt certain that if an adequate number of french troops were landed on the western or southern shore of ireland the whole mass of the population there would rally to the side of the invaders and england would have to let ireland go or waste herself in a hopeless struggle tone insisted in all his arguments and expositions that ireland must be free and independent and that no idea of conquering and annexing her must enter into the minds of the french statesmen and soldiers napoleon and carnot approved of Tone's schemes as a whole but tone could not help seeing that napoleon cared nothing whatever about the independence or prosperity of ireland and only took up with the whole scheme as a convenient project for the embarrassment and distraction of england tone received a commission in the army of the french republic and became the soul and inspiration of the policy which at fitful moments when his mind was not otherwise employed Napoleon was inclined to carry out on the Irish shores. Lord Edward Fitzgerald was a son of the great ducal house of Leinster. He was born in the same year as Wolfe Tone. He was to die in the same year. It was his evil fortune to have to fight for the cause of King George against the uprising of the patriotic colonists of North America. He afterwards became filled with the ideas of the French Revolution and got into trouble more than once by expressing his sentiments too freely while yet he wore the uniform of the british army in paris he became acquainted with thomas paine and was greatly taken with the theories and charmed with the ways of the revolutionary thinker and in the company of paine and congenial associates he took part in republican celebrations which became talked of in england and led to his dismissal from the army Lord Edward Fitzgerald had a strong love of adventure and exploration, and had contrived to combine with his military career in the New World a number of episodes, almost any one of which might have supplied the materials for a romance. He was a man of a thoroughly lovable nature, gallant, high-spirited, generous. Like Wolf Tone, he had made a romantic marriage. His wife was the famous Pamela, the beautiful girl who was ward to Madame de Genlis, and commonly believed to be the daughter of the Duke of Orléans, Philippe Egalité. Louis-Philippe, afterwards King of France, was one of the witnesses at the marriage ceremony. Lord Edward was perfectly happy with his young and beautiful wife, until the political events came on which gave the sudden and tragic turn to his life. He was a member of the Irish Parliament for many years, and had on several occasions supported the policy which was advocated by grattan he too however soon made up his mind as Wolf Tone had done that there was nothing to be expected from the sovereign and his ministers and he became an active member of the society of united irishmen when that association ceased to be a constitutional body and set its heart on armed rebellion lord edward went over to france and worked hard there for the purpose of obtaining armed assistance for the irish cause but he returned to ireland to work up the rebellious movement there while tone remained in france to influence as well as he could the policy of napoleon and carnot among the other distinguished irishmen who worked at home or in france sometimes at home and sometimes in france to promote the rebellion were arthur o'connor and thomas addis emmet arthur o'connor came of a great Irish family, Thomas Addis Emmett, after the failure of the rebellious movement escaped to the United States and made a great position for himself as an advocate in New York. A younger brother of Thomas Emmett also took part in the organization of 98, but the fate of Robert Emmett will have a place to itself in this chapter of our history. One fact has to be mentioned, and must be kept constantly in mind when we are studying the grim story of 98. Every step taken by the rebel leaders was almost instantly made known to the English government. The spy, the hired informer, was then as he has always been in the very thick of the Irish national movement. Some of the informers in 98 were of a different class from that of the ordinary police spy, and it has been made quite certain by subsequent discoveries that Wolfe Tone and Fitzgerald, Arthur O'Connor, and the Emmets, were in the closest friendly association with men whom they believed to be as genuine Irish patriots as themselves, but who were all the time in the pay of Pitt, and were keeping him well informed of every plan and project and movement of their leaders. As political morals were then, and are perhaps even now, it would be absurd to find fault with Pitt because he made use of the services of spies and informers, to get at plans of a number of men who proposed to invite a foreign enemy of England to invade the Irish shores, and were doing all they could to secure by armed rebellion the independence of Ireland. The wonder that will now occur to every reasonable mind is that the Irish leaders should have failed to guess that whatever money would do would be done by the English government, as it would have been done by any other government under similar conditions, to get at a knowledge of their designs and to counteract them. At all events, it is quite certain that while Tone and Fitzgerald and their comrades were playing their gallant desperate game, the British ministry was quietly looking over their shoulders and studying their cards. Napoleon Bonaparte, meanwhile, seems to have been but half-hearted about the scheme for the invasion of Ireland. He had many other schemes in his mind, some of which probably appeared more easy of accomplishment, and at all events promised a more immediate result than the proposed flank attack on the power of England. It is certain that Wolftone had long intervals of depression and despondency, against which it needed all the buoyancy of his temperament to sustain him. At last, a naval expedition was resolved on and dispatched. In the late December of 1796, a small French fleet with about 14,000 troops on board, under the command of General Hoche, made for the southwestern shores of Ireland. Tone was on board one of the war vessels in his capacity as a French officer serving under General Hoche. The weather proved utterly unfavorable to the expedition. The war vessels were constantly parting company, the admiral's vessel together with several others was lost to sight on the very first night and the heart of tone grew sick as he saw that with every fresh outburst of the tempest the chances even of effecting a landing grew less and less most of the vessels entered bantry bay and lay helplessly at anchor there but there was no landing tone's despondency and powerless rage as he foresaw the failure of his project might have been still deeper if he could have known how utterly unprepared the authorities of Dublin Castle were for any sort of invasion. Tone had observed already, as the expedition made its way from Brest, that they had not seen a single English vessel of war anywhere on the sea or around the Irish coasts. But he could have had no idea of the manner in which the British government had entrusted the keeping of the island to the protection of the winds and of the fates. A letter written from Dublin by Elizabeth Moira Hastings, widow of the first Earl of Moira, throws a curious light on the state of things which existed among the governing authorities at the time of the invasion, and amazingly illustrates the odd rumours and wild conjectures which were floating about at the time. Writing to a friend in a different part of Ireland, on January 19, 1797, Lady Moira says our escape has been miraculous the french fleet left brest mistook the for for mizenhead and therefore did not make their entrance into bantry bay till the twenty fourth on which very day the storm arose and prevented the greater part of their fleet getting into the bay driving the greatest part of them out to sea you will observe that it was on the nineteenth lord malmesbury had orders to quit paris he undoubtedly had purchased intelligence at a high price being duped in that inquiry by the manoeuvres of the directory, and gave false information to England. Had the French landed on the 18th or 19th, which they might have done, had they not mistaken the Derseys, we should have had the French now governing in this metropolis. All agree that there never was an expedition so completely planned, and in some points so curiously furnished. The most beautiful ladies of easy virtue from Paris were collected and made a part of the freight, Hoch's mistress accompanied him and his carriage was on board la ville d'orient taken by the druid the hussars taken on board that vessel were those who guarded the scaffold at the execution of the unfortunate louis they are clothed in scarlet jackets trimmed with gold and fur and wear each the butchers steel on which they wet their knives to wet their swords with it is reported that Hoch and riley one of the admirals are gone off to america with seven hundred thousand pounds in specie that was on board their vessel to pay the troops others think the vessel has sunk for neither of these personages or the frigate la fraternite which they were on board has been seen since they quitted brest by any of the french vessels what a fortunate person mr pitt is and what a benefit is good luck to its possessor the troops are all marching back to their old quarters Cork and its environs indignant at government for leaving them again to the entire care of Providence. It is a general belief among all parties that the French will revisit Ireland, and in no distant period, probably the next dark nights. If the storms now prevented them, they have learned how possible the attempt is, and how can such a coast be guarded? There has been much show of spirit and loyalty, and yet I thank God they did not land." The words of Wolfe Tone taken from his journal may be accepted as the epitaph of the first French expedition. It was hard, says Tone, after having forced my way thus far, to be obliged to turn back, but it is my fate, and I must submit. Well, England has not had such an escape since the Spanish Armada, and that expedition like ours was defeated by the weather, the elements fight against us, and courage is of no avail. The French did return as Lady Moira had predicted. They returned more than once, but there was a long interval between the first and the second visitation, and there were negotiations between the French and the Dutch Republic, the Batavian Republic as it was called, which had been forming an alliance with France. Neither the French Republic nor the Batavian felt any particular interest in the Irish movement, or cared very much whether Ireland obtained her national independence or had to live without it. France, of course, was willing to make use of Ireland as a vantage ground from which to harass Great Britain, and the Batavian Republic, which had for some time been lapsing out of European notice, was eager to distinguish herself and to play a conspicuous political part once again. The idea at first was that Holland should furnish the naval expedition, and France contribute the troops. Five thousand Frenchmen, under the command of General Hoche, who were to land in Ireland and form the centre and rallying point for the United Irishmen. The Batavian Republic, however, did not seem anxious to give all the military glory of the affair to France, and some excuses were made on the ground that the discipline of the Dutch navy was somewhat too severe for the soldiers of France to put up with. General Hoche seems to have acted with great disinterestedness and moderation under trying conditions. He saw that the Dutch were anxious to make a name for themselves once more, and he feared that if he were to press for the embarkation of the french soldiers it might lead to the abandonment of the whole expedition longing as he was for the chance to distinguish himself in any attack upon england he controlled his eagerness and consented that the dutch should have the undertaking all to themselves poor Wolf Tone had to wait and look on all this time eating his own heart according to the homeric phrase he has left us in his journal a description of his feelings as he saw the days go by without any movement being made to harass the English enemy, and of his own emotions when what might have seemed the heaven-sent chance of the mutiny at the Nore broke out in the English fleet, and no advantage could be taken of it to forward the chances of the expedition from the Texel. For now again the skies and the winds had come to the defense of England, and the Dutch fleet was kept to its anchorage in its own waters. Various plans of warfare were schemed out by the Batavian Republic, with the hope of putting the English naval authorities on a wrong scent, but all these schemes were suddenly defeated by the orders given to the Dutch admiral to put to sea at once. He did put to sea, and was encountered by Admiral Duncan, and the result was the great victory of Camperdown, won by the English over the Dutch after splendid fighting on both sides. Admiral Duncan thereby became Lord Camperdown, and the batavian republic dropped all ideas of a naval expedition against england meanwhile the gallant general hoche had died and wolf tone lost a true friend with whom from the beginning of their acquaintance he had been in thorough sympathy end of section twenty eight